edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate, the independent republic of Mike Graham. Online, on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is, of course, May Day. It is a day to celebrate the workers of the world. In fact, let's do it. Workers of the world unite, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Let's all vote for a political party that stands up for the people of the country. Let's vote for a political party that stands up for the trade union movement of the country. Let's vote for a party... uh, No, forget about that, actually. Um, The point about working, right, is that you actually turn up. The point about working is that you do a job. The point about working is that sometimes you don't feel like it. The point about working is that you earn money to put back into the economy, to pay taxes, to run the NHS, to run the police service, to run the fire department, to be able to run your local councils and get your bins collected. People need to go to work. Well, guess what's happening today? Nobody's working. The railways are half closed. I mean, half the railways up and down this country are not actually running. There aren't enough drivers to drive them. Why? because they want to stay at home or possibly pop to the beach. The streets of London are completely empty, ladies and gentlemen. There's hardly anybody out there. Why? They've taken the day off. The NHS has practically shut down for the entire bank holiday weekend. Why? Because that's what they do. For heaven's sake, even MPs aren't working. Of course, they'll tell you that they are. Some of them are doing some interesting things. We learned over the weekend what a dominator was. I didn't know it was that. We also learned a thing or two about tractors. I didn't know about that either. And now we do. And it's all thanks uh, to Mr. Not Any Longer from this parish, uh, the MP from somewhere in the West Country. We're going to talk to Tom Hunt, Conservative MP for Ipswich this morning, uh, because we don't just want to talk about tractor gate or whatever you wish to call it. We do want to talk about beer gate, Sir Beer Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, the man who keeps saying he didn't do anything wrong, uh, while simultaneously calling for the resignation of almost everybody in the Cabinet. Angela Rayner, it turns out, made up her own story about the old uh, Sharon Stone basic instinct manoeuvre. What is going on in the House of Commons? People are talking about a culture of misogyny, a culture of laddishness. Shut all the bars, they say. That'll make a difference. Well, it won't, actually. And it's not as bad as you might think. But they do need to get their act together, don't they? 0344-499-1000 is the number to call us on. We're going to talk to Peter Hitchens about the BBC. Is it time to defund it and just start slicing and dicing it now? Why wait for five or seven years? We're going to talk about how many millions of people can't get a dental appointment anymore. We're also going to talk about possibly some of the greatest news ever over the course of the weekend. Meghan Markle has been cancelled. Harry! Harry! Netflix have just been on the phone! They don't want us to do that show anymore. Dear me, what a great piece of news that is. That really cheered me up this morning. Anyway, listen, lots to do, lots to talk about. We will be taking your calls, of course, as well. Uh, we also will be talking about Boris Johnson wanting to bring back the right to buy. I think it's a massive error, massive mistake. I don't see why people should be allowed to get cheap housing uh, just because they're already living in cheap housing. Do you know what I'm saying? 0344 499 is the number. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the biggest and newest television network. It is, of course, Talk TV, and we're here for you. Let's say a very, very good morning to Tom Hunt, Conservative MP for Ipswich, who, of course, is working today, because otherwise we wouldn't be talking to him. Tom, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. Now, I hope uh, Ipswich is in fine fettle. Um, Looking around the streets of London today, it seems as though everybody has taken even more time off than they did the last time we had a bank holiday. Um, But we've got plenty to talk about. Let's kick things off, first of all, uh, with when is a party a party? Because you'd have to say the Labour Party seem very confused indeed about what it is that they can do that nobody else can do. Well, I think that um, looking at the event that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor were fined uh, for, for attending and comparing that with this event that um, Keir Starmer appears to have attended, I, I think one is much closer to a party, in my view, than the other, and that's the event Keir Starmer was at. It seems as though at 10pm, after 10pm, there is videos of him drinking beer, eating curry, uh, and there seem to be a fair few people around him who he doesn't usually mix with. Um, we had a report from the local curry house that seems to suggest there was an order for 30 people. That's now been retracted, so God knows what's going on there. But, you know, it's clearly there's enough in this incident to warrant an investigation by Durham Constabulary. And I think that's what they should do. I think that it's clear to me that we're dealing with a sanctimonious hypocrite. That is quite clear what we're dealing with. And it's interesting how all of a sudden, having to, to, wanted to talk about nothing else apart from Partygate, Keir Starmer seems to be desperately keen to talk about any other issue under the sun. Yes, isn't it interesting? Uh, even uh, Labour MPs over the weekend, I saw David Lammy attempting to um, sort of defend what was going on uh, when he was on the uh, Sunday morning show, where he talks about, well, it doesn't really matter um, whether Angela Rayner was there or not. That's not the issue. The fact is that nobody was doing anything wrong. And he said it was perfectly acceptable, he thought, uh, for Keir Starmer's office to put out a basic blatant lie that Angela Rayner was not there when, in fact, she was. Uh, he said it was a mistake. He said it was a very busy office. Well, in that case, my next question would have been, well, how many other mistakes did they make that day? How many other false statements did they put out because they were too busy to get it right? Look, they've, they've lied over Angela Rayner's attendance to that event. They've claimed, they've claimed that at past 10pm, they've, they've, they've been drinking beers and everything else. And we're supposed to believe that after that, they've gone back to be hard at work. Are we honestly supposed to believe that? Really? I know. You know I, I, I think this is, this is um, I, I'm, I, you know, I think the Daily Mail in particular have done a really good job shining the spotlight on me. So shine the spotlight on it so much that the BBC have even got no choice but to ask questions about it. It, took, um, it, took, I, it did take the BBC a while to get around to actually uh, to do the story at all. Because on the day that it actually broke... Uh, that Angela Rayner was there. Uh, we were checking throughout the course of my show, and it wasn't until some quite significant time late that that morning they actually even I, did the story. I think there's a key point here. You know, I don't particularly want to talk about parties and everything else. You know, and and I think if it wasn't for the fact that Starmer had been so obsessive about uh, about what had happened in this with his incident with the cake, then uh, you know I think that we probably we wouldn't be making such a big issue of it. But what really gets to the heart here is the dishonesty, the sanctimonious, everything else. That really the hypocrisy. Those are the key issues for me. You know, and I, I'm I'm sick of this um, Keir Starmer pretending that he's some virtuous, um, you know, morally superior individual yeah. from you know wherever he's from. You know, and I, I, Islington, I think, and and, and, and I'm sick of it sick of it he's got no answers for his country he's got no he hasn't got his own plan uh, and i think the, the british public are beginning and will over time before the, the most crucial period will come to see this man for what he is mm. and that is a man he doesn't share the values of most people in this country he's a he's, he's sanctimonious and he's a hypocrite mm. and he will come unstuck he will come unstuck this isn't going to go away 
I'm not going to stop asking questions. And my colleague, Richard Holden, who's done a very good job of this, will also not stop asking questions. And this response, you know, when Keir Starmer's asked, you know, what was the difference between the event in Durham and, what, and, and, and the, 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 the event that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister were fine for? And he goes, well, the difference is that they were fine and I weren't. I'm sorry, that is not an answer. Right. We were asking very specific questions about the rules, which were yeah. clearly broken in Durham. Yes, all of which he very enthusiastically backed. And I would say um, that I have always uh, denied that those rules were necessary. I've always said that they should never have been put in and they were absolutely and utterly ridiculous. But certainly there's no question that he was very enthusiastic about having those rules imposed on people. And in fact, quite often, when Boris Johnson wanted to lift some of those restrictions, he fought against it. Here, if you, if, 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 just a key point here, and that is, it's incredibly important that the, uh, the police are beyond reproach and they seem to be impartial. You know, we had rules that were introduced on a national level to do with, you know, gatherings, etc. Um, we can't have a situation where uh, a police force in one part of the country decides to go about things in a certain way, and a police force in another uh, part of the country goes about goes, decides to do something completely different, particularly on something which is as politically sensitive as this. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. But I mean, the bottom line as well uh, out there for uh, for those people as we are in uh, we are in the uh, the week of the the local government elections. I mean, what is being said inside of your own party, Tom, about the way that this will all play out? Because of course there are those who say um, that uh, Boris Johnson might be punished, but he might not be because people might vote on local issues, and it's obviously a very different you know ball game when when people do that. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, these these are local elections. When uh, you know, we're in government, we're in government, and these are midterm local elections. So you know, we we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be expecting to see us making huge advances. The pressure is very much on Keir Starmer, you know, uh, to, to 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 win and win big across the country, not just in certain areas, but in all all key areas. That is the thing that I'll be looking for. You know, it does, does, does I mean, the, the thing that people care about most when I knock on doors is cost of living It's and it's local issues. It's the antisocial behaviour in certain areas, you know, road quality, um, NHS, immigration is a big issue. You know, these are the issues that I'm talking about most of the time. And actually, um, you know, I think it's important. We just hopefully we can get to a point where we can just move on from this. Uh, this obsession about um, whether what, what rules are broken years ago, two years ago. And the only reason I'm talking about it is just because of the hypocrisy of it all. Yeah, no, but quite. Really- well, listen, people, as you say, are far more interested in other matters, particularly immigration, particularly today on immigration, actually, because an awful lot of my uh, viewers were pretty dismayed to see yesterday uh, the tide turning once again, if you'll pardon the pun, and another 300 illegal migrants coming to Britain after we were told that basically the Rwanda policy was working because nobody had come for nine days. Now, it depends on who you talk to as to why that was the case. Some believe uh, that it was too windy. I suspect it was more to do with the tides than the wind. Uh, But I myself was under the impression that it was working. And I'll tell you for why, because I think there are people who are not going to come because they don't want to go to Rwanda. But surely to God, what we should be seeing as the British public is those people who arrived yesterday being taken somewhere where they will shortly be put on a plane and flown off to Rwanda, because that's what you said you would do. Um, yeah, and when when this, I think it's important we we, we realise that this this partnership was I think it was struck about it was struck two weeks ago, uh, you know the partnership was agreed two weeks ago. Uh, a few days after the partnership was agreed, the prime minister said that it was intention for the first people to be you know fl- flown to Rwanda within within six weeks. So I I, I was never expecting that the you know the partnerships announced problems immediately solved. You know I, that that's not why I was 
No, but, but the narrative, Tom, as you well know, coming from, from Downing Street, was that the, you know, this is obviously working because nobody's come here for nine days. Well, I think it is. It was startling that people that, that, that zero people came here for sort of um, ten or eleven days. Yeah. Um, that, and actually, if you look at the period as a whole over the last two weeks, there have been a lot less people coming across. I agree. No, listen, I agree with you, that. and I think it is having an effect. But I think it would have an even better effect and a bigger effect because three hundred is nothing compared to what was the number of people coming. It was double that before. But what I am saying uh, is that if you now make that gesture, the final gesture, which is to put people on planes and get them out of here then that will stop them all coming, in my view. Well, that, is a key, that is a key thing. Look, whether or not the announcement of that happening has had a deterrent effect or not, uh, I, you know, perhaps it has, perhaps it hasn't to the extent we'd like. But I, I agree with you. The key thing will be when we get those videos and those pictures of individuals being flown to Rwanda. Yeah. I think so that, 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 will, that, will be, that will be the point. Stay with us, Tom, if, if you can, because we've got lots more to talk about, uh, lots more to do. Tom Hunt is here, Conservative MP for Ipswich. If you've got a question for him, you know what to do. You can tweet it to me at IROMG or at TalkTV. This is Talk TV. Back after this. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to Talk TV. This is the home of common sense. We are here, of course, now for the duration. You can find us everywhere. Uh, watch us wherever you want on Sky, on Virgin Media, uh, on Freeview, on FreeSat, on YouTube, on our app as well. Uh, it's fantastic. We launched it this time last week, actually shortly later than this time last week. Piers Morgan, of course, uh, Tom Newton Dunn. Uh, loads going on. Uh, nothing to miss at all. Uh, let's talk some more to Tom Hunt, Conservative MP for Ipswich. Tom, uh, we were just talking about the, uh, the migrant situation. I think people will accept that, yes, there it takes time to put this stuff into action. But I think what people need to see is that there is a plan. I mean, you say that, that you've got a plan, but what we don't see is anything moving towards that plan, if you like. You know, like where are the planes going to go from? You know, when uh, is the first plane going out? Who's operating it? You know, that kind of thing. I think, you know, announcing something is great and everybody was very much behind it. And I certainly was behind it and I'm still behind it. But I'd like to see a bit more action. Well, I know, I know, but I go back to that point, though, which was two weeks ago, which was just this partnership was announced, it was struck, which was, you know, many of us are very pleased about. Uh, and the Prime Minister was quite clear that it was his aim for the first plane to go to Rwanda within within a six-week period. Yeah. And it, it's been two weeks. So, I mean, I, I think, I think I have to say, I, I, I don't agree um, with... Um, uh, people being despairing about 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 what's happened. I mean, I don't know if people honestly expected that just announcing it in itself would be the, the panacea to all. Of, I mean, I, don't, I never believed that. It was always my view that it's going to, it's going to be when those planes start going to Rwanda, when, when it becomes incredibly clear to those in France that this is not a PR gimmick. This is going to happen, uh, and if you try and illegally enter our country, there is a reasonable chance that you will end up in Rwanda. That is what it's going to take, uh, and that would be the point to which the measure sinks in. Um, and and I, of course, I want that to happen as soon as possible. But I think I'm realistic about the fact that you know you, it's not going to be partnership announced. It starts happening the day after. No, you know, it's, I know, so, I know. But but yeah. as ever, there are there are plenty of places in between those two positions, aren't there? You know, and I think if we can see like that, there is a movement. For example, a lot of people saying to me today, "What can we be told by the government about the people who arrived yesterday?" Are they being put into hotels like everybody else or will they be held in a special uh, place given that the policy has now been announced? They shouldn't be put in hotels because that costs us five million a day. Let's put them somewhere else. Yeah, there's a detention centre which is going up in North Yorkshire. Um, but no, I think it's a reasonable question uh, and it's one that I, you know, I would like an answer to. But, you know, I just think the key thing, though, is going to be, you know, getting, getting as many as possible going to going to Rwanda and being flown out 
to Aranda um, because, you know, I'll be honest with you. Um, I I know some people have got, I mean, Rwanda is a safe place. It is a nice place. But to be perfectly honest with you, my biggest concern is our border security. I yeah. haven't got a huge, I haven't actually got a huge amount of sympathy for people who illegally enter our country. No, neither have I. And neither have most of the country, actually. Forget about what you read. Like in... European country. Like, I, I don't actually have a great amount of sympathy. Like, Rwanda is a safe country. Great. That's about as far as it goes for me. You know, I, I really don't, you know, if I don't, if I don't want to, risk a possibility of going to Rwanda, stay in France, or perhaps go back to one of the other safe European countries yeah. you'd come through to go here. Because actually their actions, the actions of young single men, are directly working against the interests of some of the most vulnerable people actually fleeing areas of conflict. Mm. Women and children from Ukraine, for example. Yeah. These individuals are taking up capacity in the system, and they are working against the interests of genuine refugees. Mm. So, and they are undermining our border security. Uh, they are, we don't know who they are. We don't know whether they're a security threat or not. You know, I do not have a huge amount of sympathy for these individuals. No. Well, similarly, uh, with all those people uh, on the left side of politics who tell us that all oh, these are all very vulnerable people, we must welcome them all in. Uh, well, one, they don't know that because, one, we don't know who they are or where they've come from in many cases because they've chucked away uh, all of their uh, identification papers. And so they can pretend to be from somewhere if they wish, but they certainly do not have a right at all we, to, to we be know- here. We know one thing. We know one thing about them, which is that they've come from another safe European country, another safe European country, and they have illegally entered our country. Yeah. That is the one thing we know about them. So, frankly, it's not a good start, is it? Well, it really it's isn't. It really isn't. It's like coming downstairs to find a burglar in your living room uh, and saying, "Oh, thanks very much indeed for breaking into my house. I'm sure you must be very desperate. Would you like to stay?" Yeah. Well, you it's, know, it's, 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 that's a that's a fair that's a fair equivalent you've drawn there uh, so so i i think i'm, I'm not i'm not you know, my, my biggest concern is to represent my constituents and ensure that we do not have people illegally entering our country. No, I think you're absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit more about the civil service, because leading on from there, we read many pieces over the weekend about the Home Office, the way the Home Office has been run. Everybody, uh, I think, now understands that it's sort of uh, honeycombed with uh, socialists and champagne socialists at that who don't want to carry out any of the wishes of any Conservative government. You know, something's going to have to be done about this, isn't it? Um, I mean, to be honest, though, I, I, I think there's an element of that. I think there's an element of that. I don't doubt. I think there are some uh, officials within the Home Office who are being recalcitrant. Well, you know, they need to realise, though, that if they aren't prepared to implement the wishes of the democratically elected uh, ministers, then you know, they, they, they can simply go and get another job. I mean, that's the end of the matter. Um, but I do think, though, that there are, and I've spoken to um, the Home Office ministers, and, you know, actually a number of the Home Office officials have actually worked incredibly hard to make the Miranda policy work. So, I, you know, I, I mean, yes, the Home Office has its failings, but I do think there have been some Home Office officials who have really gone above and beyond to make this work. So, but yeah, I mean, clearly if there is a, is a small minority of Home Office officials who have a, a big issue in border control, uh, and you, you know, frankly, the whole job of a border force is to is to, to control our borders. And if they've got a problem with controlling our borders, then frankly, you know, it's like it's like having a hairdresser who doesn't want to cut hair. Well, exactly right. You know, it's it's put, them to work in the, put them to work in the NHS where they don't want to see any patients, you know, rather they didn't turn up, it'd be easier for them. Uh, I've seen a, a very inspiring piece this morning about the work from home brigade, because we know, for example, that most of the civil service in this country is still not working in an office. There's a law firm uh, in London, a city law firm, by the name of Stevenson Harwood, which has come up with what I call a wizard plan. They say, you're very welcome to work from home if you wish. Um, we will offer you that as an alternative to working in the office, but you will have to take a 20% pay cut. Well, look, I mean, I, I think that with... Um, I, I think there are some jobs 
where it was perhaps, you know, you were going in every day, Monday to Friday, the sort of job where actually your physical attendance isn't isn't necessary. Oh, if a boss is happy with it and also the employees are happy with it, maybe moving to a bit of a hybrid situation where perhaps, you know, you, you, you do four days a week in the office, three and a half as opposed to five. But if that's agreed by the employer and the employee and they're both happy to do it, then that's fine. But clearly, I think the expectation should be that people are back in the office. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. There's no question, and, and I don't believe anyone who makes an argument to the contrary, that it's bad for the economy. And right now, for example, I mean, I was ranting at the top of the show about the fact that, you know, here we are, uh, we've got an economic disaster on the, uh, looming on the horizon. Uh, we've got rising prices. We've got a cost of living crisis going on. People can't afford to heat their own homes if they need to, if it's cold enough for them to do that. And yet everybody goes, oh, great, it's a bank holiday. Let's take the day off. You know, I mean, there seems to be some kind of sickness out there that people don't actually want to work in an office. Oh, uh, I mean, I, 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 I can't think. I mean, if I, I can't think of anything worse than working at home all the time. Personally, no. I, I like to be in the office. There's huge things, a number of things that you just can't replicate. You know, it's fine if you're doing. You know, and I've got, I've got a few, you know, constituents who who commute in from Ipswich to London, and they were doing it five days a week. Personally, I wouldn't want to do that every single day, Ipswich to London. But if he said to me, well, actually, you know, and, and, and the, the employer agreed and I agreed that I could work in Ipswich um, maybe a, a, one or two days a week from home and I could I could get, you know, get a nice apartment on an Ipswich waterfront with a nice balcony and my Friday could be spent having a croissant and doing some work maybe on the Friday, but being productive. But I'd still want to be in the office most of the time. Yeah, exactly so I, right. I, you know, but obviously I do think that I'd much rather live in Ipswich uh, than living in a crowded accommodation in London. So, and we are seeing a bit of that because obviously Ipswich has got a wonderful waterfront. It's sometimes it feels like you're in the Mediterranean when you're in Ipswich. Yeah, are you being paid an extra amount of money for uh, the Ipswich uh, tourist board? Well, I can show you the pictures. Um, I can show you the pictures, Mike. <laughs> well, do you know what? Next time, next time, uh, why don't we do um, do you on Zoom? from the waterfront and then you can have a beautiful sort of you know background behind you uh, that everybody can see how lovely it is well i've got it's quite easy i've got a balcony which overlooks it so next time i'll just i'll just i'll just i'll just i can organize that very easily okay well we, we shall sort that out we'll, we'll talk to uh, talk to aaron about that but i mean the other problem for me uh, is that you know we still need to get back to the infrastructure that we had before the pandemic and the train system in this country I and mean, I'm, I'm literally waiting to get a list of the number it's such a long list it's taking a long time for our researchers to put it together all of the train services that are not running today and all of the train services that don't run through the week where people just don't trust the trains anymore so they're not traveling on them yeah i mean i have seen, i think i have seen them getting a bit busier the trains but they're still they're still nowhere near as busy as they were yeah, that is a that is an issue uh and um you know, um, I, I, I think we've got to, you know, we've got to, we've got to get people back to work. And I think that Jacob Rees-Mogg is right. You know, the civil service government need to be leading, show me example. Uh, and I think he, he's right um, to, 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 to be going around and leaving those notes. You know, no, I, I, think think, I, think, I think, you know, if, if the government are of a view that we want the country to go back to work for various reasons, then we've got to lead by example. It's very uncontroversial. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Tom, listen, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Hunt, Conservative MP for Ipswich, which he says is a fantastic place. Uh, I don't think I've ever actually been to Ipswich, but then um, there's lots of parts of this country that I haven't been to. Uh, so if you are in one of the beautiful parts of the country and you're not working, then that's OK. But I wish you were, you know, because we do have an economy that needs boosting. We do have employment opportunities for everybody. There's an awful lot of people that can't even find enough people to give jobs to. Vacancies abound. 
And here we are sitting around saying, oh, but the trouble is everything's so expensive. Well, why are you not working then? How come you can take the day off? That shouldn't be happening. We'll take your calls. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is, of course, Talk TV. We are here uh, with you until one o'clock, and then we will have more delights for you throughout the course of the day. Um, as we talk, there are many things to talk about. Uh, front page of Daily Telegraph this morning, Johnson planning to bring back the right to buy. And I want you to think about this, right? Because... Let's face it, lots of people did very well out of Margaret Thatcher when she decided to sell off council housing to lots and lots of people who previously could never have afforded to buy a house. It seemed like a great idea, but unfortunately, they didn't replace the housing stock. And so people who genuinely couldn't afford to buy a house or to live in a, a property which was commercially rentable, that didn't help them. And all it did for a lot of people was to make them very wealthy because they could buy a council house for a very small amount of money and then sell it on for an absolute fortune. In some cases, people bought their own council house and then get, went and got another council house and sold the one that they just bought for a massive profit. My belief about this is that it's entirely unfair to give people access to you know, what would be regarded as cheaper rental accommodation and then let them buy it for less money than people who are in the commercial sector who can't afford to buy the house that they're renting because it's too expensive. I think that creates a completely unfair scenario. It completely skews the economy. And I don't think it's a good idea. Unless you're going to build more and more affordable housing, I don't see how it can work. But we'll be talking to Russell Quirk about that coming up a little bit later on. For right now, we want to talk about something else, and that is to wit the difficulties with the NHS. And today, today's difficulty with the NHS is dental care. Millions are losing care because there's been a mass exodus of about 2,000 NHS dentists, right? Simply put, it's because people working in dentistry say they can't make the NHS system work. It doesn't work for them. It's not properly funded. They can't do it. So they've gone private. Let's find out what's going on. Eddie Crouch is here, chair of the British Dental Association. Eddie, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, there's a lot of problems in the NHS. We talk about them an awful lot. Specific problems for dental care, however, are a bit different, aren't they? Why don't you tell us what the problem is? Um, well, the, the, the biggest problem is that the pandemic has made a worsening situation far, far worse. Uh, what we've heard throughout the pandemic is massive problems with people gaining access to services. Um, Healthwatch regularly produce reports from patient groups saying how difficult it is to get in to see uh, a dentist. Uh, and we've been warning the government for quite a long time across the UK, not only in England, these figures are for England. Uh, we've been warning the government for a long time that many dentists no longer see their future long-term in the NHS. Uh, many of my younger colleagues don't see their future there and are looking to get out at the earliest possible possible opportunities. I, I've worked 38 years in the NHS, but there are very few dentists like me left anymore who see their whole career within the NHS because the service is not profitable. Mm. And why is that then? What's changed? Because presumably for most of the 38 years that you were doing it, uh, you were able to make a living. What's different now? Well, there's been significant cuts in funding. It's one area of the NHS that's actually seen uh, significant uh, funding cuts over the last decade. You know, no other part of the NHS has seen less money paid in real terms a decade on. Everyone else has had uh, increases in funding. Dentistry would probably need about £879 million investing into it 
to actually make it the service it was in 2012. And even then it wasn't good enough. Mm. I mean, they only fund enough NHS care for about half the population. And if, if, if a, a, um, a member of the public, uh, one in two people only had access to a GP to see their doctor, there'd be absolute uproar. Uh, but sadly, um, you know, well, it's, it's starting. It's, it's, it's starting to get a bit like that, to be honest. But that's another story. <laughs> well, probably yes. I mean, uh, I'm not here to defend my my GP colleagues, mm. but um, y- y- there's no urgency. I mean, there's been multiple uh, debates in Parliament. There's been commitments by ministers to make the service better. They want to attract uh, dentists back to the NHS. They promised some significant changes for the start of the financial year on the 1st of April, and none of that has happened. My colleagues who negotiate regularly with uh, the people um, who who are responsible for change um, don't see that urgency. Uh, And in fact, there's almost a feeling that they want NHS uh, well, dentistry to come out of the NHS and then they want to turn around and they want to blame dentists for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose that could be a familiar story. What would the actual funding pay for uh, that you're currently not getting funded for? I mean, because I mean, for those of us who don't understand the way it works, it's kind of hard to imagine because a lot of people go to the NHS and pay. I know a lot of people don't pay, but I mean, when I we used to go to the NHS dentist, um, when when in back in the day you would always have to pay for the uh, the cleaning or the exam or whatever it was that you were getting done what is it that is not being funded exactly well in in fact over the last 5 years nhs dental charges have risen at 5% uh, at a time when inflation wasn't anywhere near like that so patients have paid more over the last 5 years than the treasury and and less money has been coming in from the treasury but the thing that's uh, that's wrong is that some treatments are just completely unprofitable the uh, the the dentist might be better off to give the patient 50 pounds and ask them to go somewhere else than actually provide the levels of treatment uh, that they have to and and make a net loss i mean there isn't there is no other business model that you would work to that you would do things that made you a loss at the end of uh, a course of treatment but that happens in dentistry regularly because the the model of it is you get paid the same irrespective of the volume of treatment that you carry out in a particular band of treatment Uh, and so as a consequence to that uh, if you're providing 10 items of treatment you get paid the same as one item of treatment and again you know, we've been waiting probably 16 years for reform of this contract. Yeah. Um, so they don't get and, paid like and, doctors. And they've just given up. They've so, given up waiting for it. So they don't get paid like doctors for the number of patients you have on your particular roster. So why don't they just do it that way? Well, that is exactly the model that the British Dental Association would like the government to introduce. Right. A capitation system where you give an allocation of funding uh, to the dental practice based on the number of patients you see, based on perhaps the area that you work in, because we know that areas of deprivation, the, the population in that area has worse dental health, and therefore the funding costs for those practices must be higher. But that's not the way the system mm. is working at the moment. Um, they were piloting something like that over a period of time. We had 10 years of piloting uh, of a way of working, but they wanted to do it with the same amount of a budget. Uh, and, and you can't see a whole population when only half the population is being funded. It just wouldn't work. No. So the people who are leaving the dental business, uh, are they just going to, into private dentistry then? Some are, uh, and some are leaving the profession altogether. Some have found it incredibly difficult during the pandemic uh, to actually cope with the levels of uh, 
personal protective equipment we've had to to wear that that is easing as the pandemic has has got better um but many people who support dental practices like dental nurses hygienists and therapists don't see their future long term in the nhs and we can't afford the pay for those members of staff that support the dental team uh, because we haven't had the funding there so you know many of my colleagues are finding that many of these uh, dental nurses are earning far more working outside the NHS, working in retail than they can afford to pay. And without a dental nurse supporting a dentist, the dentist can't work in the NHS. Mm, no, it's quite right. One of the problems that a lot of people tell me about, though, is, is it's very hard, one, to get a dental appointment now, particularly for kids. A lot of kids, I'm being told, are being told that they can't be seen um, outside of school hours. So they have to be seen in school hours. They have to take time off school to go to the dentist. That doesn't seem right, does it? No, uh, I mean we had a report recently, um, you know, about the the the, the detriment to, to child. Uh, I mean there was a there was a story last week in in the in the media of a charity uh, turning up on a school playground to actually deliver dental care to the population of a school because the kids in the school are losing time because they they've got toothache, they're losing sleep, they can't concentrate in in lessons. Before the pandemic, um, the, the number one reason why a child went into hospital to have an operation was to have teeth out. Yeah. And we, we need to turn the country around so that we can prevent this disease and save the NHS a fortune. But the current contract doesn't allow prevention uh, to the level of uh, a degree that we would want to see uh, delivered to the population. Right. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Eddie Crouch, the chair of the British Dental Association. Millions without NHS dental care. If you're one of them or if you've tried to get yourself a dental appointment, we'd love to hear from you because, you know, we do stories about the NHS here all the time and the failing parts of it that don't work properly. It would now appear that we've found another one that doesn't work properly. And it's absolutely right to say uh, that children are being told <clears throat> if you need to get a dentist appointment, you have to come during school hours. So they have to miss school to go to the dentist. Madness, isn't it? This is Talk TV. Let us talk about Meghan and Harry, because today you may have found uh, some pleasure in reading an article in the Sun newspaper. Netflix ditches Meghan's TV show. Did you ever think you'd see the day? Meghan Markle cancelled by Netflix. Oh, joy. Let's speak to Angela Levin, journalist and royal biographer. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, I know I shouldn't gloat, but I mean, I did have a little wry smile on my face when I saw this story, I have to say. Yeah, what is very interesting is that if you are a member of the royal family, you get incredible opportunities. Everybody wants to meet you, talk to you. So it was understandable, Netflix, Spotify, you name it, they were after them. However, you know, hard work comes after that. You have to give them the goods. And apparently this series, which is based on Meghan, really, mm. um, although it's called The Pearl, the pizza sort of part of a, a translation of Megan. And it's about, you know, a girl who um, grew up trying to get the best out of previous wonderful females, but she hasn't done a thing. She and David <laughs> Furnish, um, Elton John's husband, were yes. going to do it together. But there was nothing to show Netflix yet. They said this and made a statement last July. But still, there's absolutely well, nothing. Well, listen, to be fair... So, understandable, Netflix has got to get rid of loads of stuff because they're... I've got a money problem. Obviously, we'll get rid of the things that they haven't got anything about. If they've done it quickly, mm. done it properly, listened to other people, but no. Well, of course, the great thing about Megan uh, is that she's very good at talking a good game, 
not so good at actually carrying out the game. You know, we've not heard any more from her since that Oprah Winfrey interview about all of the things that she claimed uh, were true, which were then later debunked. You know, she's got, she's kicked all that off into the side. Uh, we're never going to hear from that again. And she's only made one podcast for um, Spotify, right? They asked them to do a series of podcasts. I think they're going to try and gear up to see if they can do a second one you know, I do a podcast every single day from this show. I also do a podcast every single week for something called the Thought Police. You know, these people who haven't actually got jobs can't manage to do more than one a year. Yeah. Well, the first one they did was about very rich people taking unable to take holidays and complaining about it, including John <laughs> couldn't use his plane. Poor yeah. man. Uh. But the interesting thing is Spotify is waiting for this summer for her to do another thing, which is about... Um, women who are stereotyped. Where does it come from? She's going to speak to historians and women who feel they're stereotyped. But hang on, what's gone on with it? Nothing yet. Right. So it's very similar to Netflix. It's all about her and um, being a, a proud woman. But actually, um, it's sort of passe. We've all moved on. Most women are okay. The thing is now is gender rather than actually being yeah. stopped. But no, with, the, with the greatest of respect to Meghan, I mean, who cares what she thinks? She's married to a very, very wealthy man. Uh, she's had a very privileged upbringing. You know, she's been an actress. Um, she doesn't, as far as I know, have much of a, an expertise in anything in particular. You know, uh, she's a woman, but so are you. And so are many other women, you know, but you don't get 100 million from Netflix just because you're a woman. No, but you see, the title does it. But she didn't want the title. They don't want to be royal, so they, they didn't want to um, do anything that was royal except use the title that will help them make loads of that money. That would be why she introduced Harry uh, as um, Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex, the last time they were out in uh, the old Invictus Games. Yes, as if it was the Oscar Awards. Yes. And I think that um, it's very interesting, actually, because... Um, you can't just use people for your own ends. You actually have to prove things. When a lot of money is concerned with a big company, they're not stupid. They're only going to wait so long. I think they've been incredibly patient and they've decided that along with other things, they're not the only thing that they're getting rid of. You just cut out the trash, really, and you carry on with what is really good and what you're seeing, what you're being shown. But also Megan won't take advice. You know, she thinks she knows. That's the trouble. Mm. And she's very proud. And it's all gone to their heads. Right. They feel, you know, like Harry is going to supervise his grandmother from... 5,000 miles away because he's concerned. Yeah, but again, it's all sound bites, isn't it? I mean, he comes straight off a plane, straight into NBC Studios, the Today programme, to spill the beans on what Granny told him in a meeting which should have been private and personal. Um, But we hear nothing more now. He said all that, and then he says, oh, I might come back for the Platinum Jubilee, but we're not sure if he's coming. I haven't heard whether he's coming. Do you know? What I feel very upset about is that, you know, it's only a month away and anybody knows that you need to be polite about these things, um, especially for royals. They need some sort of protection. They need somewhere to stay. And, and the seating plan needs to be changed. Mm. But they're not telling them that they're coming. And I think that's a way of 
um, being popular, that the people that want to know what they're doing, when are they coming, are they coming yet? So they're taking the focus away from the real royal family and actually playing games about will we, won't we? And I think that's very unkind. They must know whether they can come. They've got the money to come. The Queen's bent and the, and the House and the government have bent over backwards. Mm to give them the security they want. But, oh, no, they've got to play this game that they're still not sure. Harry said it was... Um, Dangerous, Security and everything else, he said, that is stopping him. What everything else can it be? You know, I hate people who manipulate like that, forever manipulating, forever putting themselves out in the front, and it's all about me. Mm. What about the Queen, for goodness sake? We now know she might not even be able to get onto the balcony. Right. But it's very, very sad that they've turned like that. It's a great disappointment. Meghan had some skills, but she's actually thrown them away because she's so full of grandeur. Mm, absolutely right. And, I mean, I must admit, if I was in charge of their diary, I'd probably be going through it trying to find something written down because, you know, I can't imagine what it is that they're doing that's keeping them so busy uh, from them being able to put something else into that diary to say, oh, well, we'll take, we can definitely make that date. I think they might be very busy, but I think Megan is the time, as she showed with um, preparations for her wedding, of going over and over and over things. Things aren't right. Things have got to be done better. Things have got to change. You know, I think she's nervous in that sort of way that she can't just say, I like A, B, C, D, E, but nothing is good enough. Nothing's right. And she blames everybody around her. And I think it's very difficult to get things done from somebody who has that sort of attitude. You're, they're confident, overconfident, but also unsure yes. it's a very strange combination do you understand what i, I mean? know exactly what you mean and it's very well put angela thank you very much indeed great to see you great to talk to you uh angela levin a journalist royal biographer on the quandary uh, that is harry and megan a strange couple sure of themselves but unsure as well this is talk tv talk radio get a grip raw talk pure energy clear-headed honest opinion lively debate talk radio on your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens is here from the Mail on Sunday. Um, what do you make of, uh, of these calls, by the way, for um, the modernisation of Parliament? Because inevitably the tractor story has turned into, oh, it's a den of iniquity. People stand around getting drunk all day and then go and vote on very important matters. I mean... Parliament is a very unusual place. You've, you've spent plenty of time there. I, what do you I, make work, I worked there for, for, for some years in the 1980s. Uh, there is too much drinking there. There's no question yeah. that. And I, I wouldn't regret it at all if that, would, if that would cut down. But what people have to remember is, is members of Parliament are not employees. They're mm. employees of the government. Uh, they, if, if they're employed by anybody, it's by the people who've elected them, to mm. whom they're responsible. And their jobs have become far too much, as, uh, jobs of obedient party hacks, asking planted questions at Prime Minister's question time, doing exactly what they're told, never rebelling on mm. anything significant, never giving anybody any trouble. And I think the tendency towards having a sort of ideal uh, member of parliament, it seems to me is it w would be a, um, a radical left-wing woman uh, for preference, mm. uh, is a mistake. You have to have, apart from anything else in a British parliament, you have to have some noise and raucousness because it's, it's supposed to be a safety valve right. for a quite strongly divided nation, divided by class, divided by region, divided by age, divided by all kinds of things. Mm. It should reflect that. Yes. If it doesn't reflect that, it just becomes a quiet, well-behaved committee 
of wholly uh, blameless people, then it will lose its point. Mm. And, it, and when, when the safety, safety valve is blocked, the boiler explodes. I think it might be close to losing its point. I mean, I was laughing the other day when somebody suggested that um, this guy Parrish had somehow brought Parliament into disrepute. And I thought, really? I he mean, brought himself he, into disrepute. Well, no, but also, what, what reputation now does Parliament have? I mean, there are people sitting in there still uh, who have been found guilty of criminal acts. There are people who have been sent to prison who were working there. There are people who are still uh, in position, having been found to have been up to all sorts of nastiness. Well, sister, that, that doesn't trouble me all that much because, as I say, it ought to be as, as representative as possible yes. of, of the people as a whole and therefore there will be people in it who I, not, I will not like and who will do things which are wrong. Yeah, but hopefully not representative of, of people who have some rather odd habits. No, but people, representative of people with failings, I yeah. think we might, we might reasonably okay. say. Um, but I don't. I, I just think it's become colourless and bland. Mm. I, and I think, for instance, that thirty years ago you had, for instance, an MP like Tam Diel, who yeah. it didn't really matter what party was in power. He was always prepared to make trouble for the government yeah. on the basis of hard forensic factual investigation of what they were up to. Yes, uh, there were tedious but nonetheless dedicated left-wing MPs with a sort of frank. Even the old beast of Bolsover. Yeah, was good fun, but they it? were. They, the thing was that nobody could guarantee a smooth, no. uh, un, a, a, a smooth, untroubled hearing. For anything, and the whole point about about uh, Parliament is the the one law it passes every week is the law of unintended consequences. Yeah. With weak opposition and an absence of, of troublemakers and difficult people, then it will constantly do that. And if you try and weed out uh, people who are in any way difficult, awkward, even misbehaved, noisy, raucous, yeah. whatever it may be, and if you try to make it a bland chamber then you will get a chamber which isn't much use to the country. Yes, I think that's right. And I wonder as well whether we wouldn't have had the problems that we did have for the last two years if everybody wasn't so kind of easily swayed in Parliament because all the things that you predicted have come true uh, in the sense of the you know uh, the state of the economy, for payback for all the furlough money, the way that uh, people were changed forever. And the disaster ways. of the health service. Yeah. It's it's a, the appalling, it's entirely predictable disaster yeah. of the health service, which which was achieved under the banner of saving it. Mm. It's extraordinary things, yeah. But very little opposition, very few people of a, of a troublemaking nature. And I have a feeling that it's po just possible that if you want to have a, a troublemaking parliament, then you have have to have a parliament with some uh, with a higher proportion of bad apples in it. I think they probably go together. They won't be the same people necessarily. But it's uh, there's, there's too much selection of MPs by party machines. Yes. On the basis that they'll that they're, they're, they've got absolutely no um, problems with them at all, they're just bland, obedient, uh, basically uh, serfs. I mean, I know it's sort of pie in the sky to talk about it, but would we be better off without a party system? Would you not no. just elect kind of individuals who could then form groups? No, it's the what you need those different parties, and the two parties that we have are, are both dead. Mm. If, the, if if you held a flag day for either of them on the streets, no one would give any money. Yeah. They're kept alive by the donations of dodgy billionaires and, and by a huge amount of state aid, yeah. and also by broadcasting rules, which give the existing parties far too much uh, coverage and far too much mm. leeway. At a, at a, there's no real room for newcomers at a, no. at a general election. That needs to change. If you could get rid of these two parties, I always said if you could have a Peter Hitchens party and a Polly Toynbee party yes. instead of what we have, mm. that would much better reflect the disagreements in the country, uh, result in much better governments of both left and right, and, have, and, and produce a much more intelligent parliament. But we don't have that. We, no. have, we have these parties which are based on divisions, which mm. in most cases cease to exist That's 30 right. years ago. I mean, and I get many, many people now saying I don't like either one of 
of them. I wish there was an alternative that could be successful. But it's but very isn't. difficult to crack through. Mm. And people say, oh, let's have proportional representation, but you'd wave goodbye. That's not any good either. No, the, the, one of the great things about, about my life, I remember Ted Heath mm. in, 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 in 19... In, in when it was 1974, mm. having to hoik his piano out into the street yes. overnight because he just lost an election. Right. This doesn't happen in most countries. No. It, it, people are not thrown out of power, and this is a great thing that we have mm. with, with the with with the two party system, which I think we should keep. Mm. If you have proportional re representation, the government is always basically the same people. Yeah, it's just a sort of merry-go-round. Let's talk about Julian Assange. Um, we've got a couple more minutes to go. Uh, you wrote about him again this weekend. Yeah, I, I just feel, I wish more people would, would join us because it doesn't matter what you think of Julian Assange, even to some extent of what he did. The mm. way in which he's being treated simply is not fitting for a civilised free country. He shouldn't be in the conditions he's being held in. There's no reason why he's in a maximum no. security prison. Okay, so he's a flight risk, but he's not going to climb out of Belmarsh. Well, you wouldn't have thought so. There are other, there are, it, it's, it begins to look um, like something else. And the other thing is that what it's a real challenge to national sovereignty. The Americans have decided uh, they, want to, they want to prosecute him on basically political grounds. And I don't think a sovereign country can allow another power to reach into its territory and pluck somebody out because it doesn't like him because basically he embarrassed them. Mm. That's basically his crime in America. Yes. And I do think that Priti Patel, a lot of people are very rude about Priti Patel, but she could, I think if, if she were to respond to the letters which I urge people constantly to write to her, polite and brief, yeah. urging her to, to refuse the extradition, she were to do that, she'd transform her reputation, mm. I think. And remember, Theresa May, uh, refused to extradite Gary McKinnon in, in, in parallel, remarkably similar right. circumstances. And it, ultimately, it didn't do us, the country, any harm, and it was very good and for it Gary didn't, McKinnon. And it didn't harm any relationship between the US and the UK either? A bit, I think. There was some, there was some huffing and Some and, bruised and puffing, egos. But maybe. I don't think any serious damage was done, because in the end, actually, as, as General de Gaulle proved in his relations with the Americans, if you stand up to the United States... Uh, they treat you better than if you don't. Yeah, they find somebody else uh, to bully, basically, yeah. and they can go elsewhere for that. But you're absolutely right. It does. I think for most people who, once you tell them why you feel the way you do about Julian Assange, because he's being held, literally having not been convicted of any crime, just yeah, it's because shocking, he might go somewhere, it's ludicrous. It's shocking that he should have been in prison so long without yeah. being convicted of anything. You think you, this is what you were brought up to believe never happened here. Yes. And yet it has. Similarly, as I said the other day, to, to put Boris Becker in Wandsworth Jail, one of the worst, most Victorian horror jails of, of, of the nation, is just mad. Well, our whole prison system, uh, people are surprised by the whole prison system is a disgrace anyway. Mm. And, uh, something enormously radical needs to be done about it, but I, th th that's a question for another longer day. Yes, indeed. Well, listen, it's great to see you. We're out of time, sadly. We're almost out of time. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to see you here every week. Let's hope so. If we can manage to get the trains running and uh, the transportation systems working. And, oh, my uh, bicycle is working. That's, the key, that's key. Well, passage. that's the main thing. Did you find somewhere to park it? Well, I don't know whether it'll still be there when I get back, <laughs> course, but then you never do. That's always a worry. I came out of here, I did a show on Saturday night, and for the first time I was walking out, outside here at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. It was like something out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Good heavens. There's anything like it. It certainly shocking. isn't like it's, 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 it's much more like the aftermath. Of I'm I'm 28 days after uh, that's a day. <laughs> I'm obviously, Bank holiday. I'm obviously getting old. Peter Hitchens, great to see you. Uh, we've got more to come. We will take more of your calls, of course. 0344 499 uh, is the number. Um, we've got um, more guests to talk to. Let me read you a couple of these. These days I avoid train travel at weekends and bank holidays. The only exception being the Thought Police show in Putney on the 7th of May. My goodness me, that's ours. And here's one from Sir Mac who says, why can't the government sack civil service workers who refuse to return to work and demand that the civil service leaders resign if they refuse to implement government policy? Well, that's a very good point, actually. Um, 
Peter, I'm going to keep you here for this because that the civil service and the politicisation of the civil service seems to be a relatively new thing, is it? Well, it is. I mean, it started under Margaret Thatcher mm. with a, to a certain extent, but it was hugely extended by the, the, the Blair government, which I think we, it isn't today the 25th anniversary of that terrible... Actually, yes, it is. That terrible I meant to ask day. you about that. And the thing that they did, which was, was noted but not fully understood, was that the orders in council were passed, basically... Uh, bypassing the Constitution, saying that two people, including Alistair Campbell, our old friend, uh, were to be given the powers to order civil servants about, even though they had no elected office. Mm. Uh, the other one was Jonathan Powell. Yes. And this was a, a Who huge... Who prefers his name pronounced Poll, I think, isn't it? I don't know why. Oh, no, this is, that's the other one. It, there's a long story about, oh, sorry. The, about the Poles but it, ah. it, and the Powells. But it, no, it, but the point about them was... This was <laughs> Poles it, apart. It, it was, as, we, as, as we know, uh, the... the Blair creature isn't really on top of things very much. I mean, he, he, I remember a conversation in which he didn't know that they spoke uh, Portuguese in Brazil. He thought they spoke Brazilian. Really? He really isn't very clued up. And the idea that he was a sort of executive prime yeah. minister has always made me laugh. So if they had to have somebody. Yes. And it was Alistair. Mm. And they had to give him. But on the other hand, the electorate would never confronted with Alistair in any constituency or, or let alone as the leader of a party would ever have allowed him anywhere near the levers of office so he couldn't get in that way yeah. so they, uh, they they got these orders in council through and that was the beginning of it and one of the things which Alistair did was he got an iron grip on the civil service mm. uh, which it, which the government has never let go of so it is it is more and then did they then sort of politicise it at that moment put their people in as it were well point, I think yeah they, they made it they, they made it as a, as a servant of government then the other thing of course which they did was they they made the Conservative Party their servant mm. by browbeating it repeatedly in those uh, the William Hague elections yes. and, the, and, and the Michael Howard election until the Conservative Party more or less adopted a new Labour position. Yeah. So you have a double revolution. You have the, the end of, of, of any diversity of major political parties and you have the end of civil service neutrality. And it helps to, to produce what we have. Uh, but the disaster of, of, of working from home, of course, is that it took perhaps 200 years of industrial revolution to get people used to the idea of going into yeah. work every day. And it was dealt the most tremendous blow by, by the COVID panic. And once people have found that life is perfectly pleasant without doing it, it's extraordinarily difficult to get them to go back. Yes. I mean, our current position of, of laws and, and human rights and everything else are very, very hard for the, for the government to to actually find the power to do this. Mm. So it doesn't happen. No. It may never happen. People, in some cases, may never go back to regular daily Well, I have, there's been one glint of light this morning. There's a law firm in the city who have apparently said to people, you're very welcome to work from home. We'll give you a 20% pay cut. And I wonder whether that might just spur well, some more people to come well, back in. Let's see how that plays in the courts before mm. we, you know, everything else. I mean, the, the courts these days are not necessarily inclined to support actions of that kind, and that's why people are reluctant to do them. Mm. And you, you look at this, the real other revolution which has taken place has been in the judiciary and the courts, which yeah. are, are very radical now. They really are. And they, they, you cannot rely on them to enforce what you would have thought 30 or 40 years ago was... Uh, was They're was quite keen law. on letting climate activists off the hook every single Well, there's that too, but it's, it, it, is a, it is a very big change, and it's one of the reasons why governments and employers hesitate to do things which, again, once they would unhesitatingly have done. Mm. We've had a revolution in this country, yeah. and the, one of the major moments of it was 25 years ago today when that ridiculous fake demonstration was well, happening. Well, I was going to say, if you ever want to know why... Um, it was all a bit of a con job. Uh, you know, looking up Downing Street that morning, I remember going, oh, isn't it great? Everybody wants to see this young man with his young family in Downing Street. Oh, yeah. Then it turned out they were all members of the Labour Party. Well, of course they were, because nobody <laughs> else can get in for, for years. You, Downing Street had been closed. 
I, I remember you could, when you could walk through it. It was uh, all showbiz, wasn't it? It, it was, but it, but the thing is, it is still shown that clip of Blair going into Downing yeah. Street with the cheering crowd waving you. It's still shown as if it's a genuine event, yeah. when in fact it's a completely North Korean. Thing. It really is. But it's it, I only once when I presented a program for BBC Four, oddly enough, did I ever get it on air that mm. this is this is a fake demonstration. Yeah. But I see it over and over again. Well, now we've done it again. We're going to play it later and show you just how fake it was. Peter, this is definitely definitely goodbye this this time. This is definitely goodbye. This is definitely goodbye. The long goodbye. Uh, Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, We'll see you next week. Same time, uh, same channel. Now, there's an awful lot of good things coming up as well because um, we will be telling you all about the new Boris Johnson plan, which is, in fact, to sell public housing once more to individuals who want to buy it. You remember the Margaret Thatcher plan? Remember when they sold off all the council houses and then they didn't replace them and then nobody could get a council house and there's a big long waiting list? Remember that? Well, now they want to do it again, only this time with housing association properties. It doesn't seem like a very good idea to me. Let's talk to Russell Quirk, property expert, media commentator, uh, friend of the show. Mr Quirk, a very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Mike. So, yeah, very well indeed. Now, this might be a very unpopular opinion and uh, as of yet, I haven't been slagged off for it, but I'm sure it will happen. I don't think it's right to give people the ability to buy property for less money than the commercial price, because there are plenty of people who don't have access to that, who will feel as if they've been very hard done by. You know, if I'm renting a flat, uh, which I can't afford to buy, and somebody's in a housing association property, uh, which they can afford to buy because it's been set at a much lower price, that doesn't seem to be equitable to me. Yeah, and unfortunately, this has got much less to do with economics and morals rather than politics. This is Boris, I have to say at last, Mike, channeling his inner Maggie. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often. You know, this is a man that likes to put taxes up and uh, doesn't like freedom. He likes lockdowns and, and so on. So he's not exactly a conservative in my book. But look, this is straight out of Margaret Thatcher's playbook. I, I think it's a good idea. It's a good idea if you're Boris. And it's a good idea if you're a conservative because they are without doubt, the party of so-called aspiration, and that definitely relates to property. This seems to be a kind of a signal to the red wall. And, you know, no coincidence that this is announced three days before the local elections, of course. Um, it, it's it's a hat tip to the socialist class, isn't it? You know, those that are in affordable housing, council housing, and so on, the Alar Maggie can now uh, see... Uh, can start to have enthusiasm for actually being able to buy their own home. So I think, look, it's good politically, but economically, how do we scare the circle whereby, as you rightly say, when Margaret Thatcher introduced this back in the late 70s, early 80s, they didn't replace the houses that were sold, and therefore we ended up with a huge, great shortage. Right. And that's what we already have. I mean, we've already got a shortage of affordable homes so that we have now uh, the possibility of having even fewer of them, which seems to me to be bonkers. But I do really feel quite strongly about the the, the idea of many people who in this country now, particularly young people, say, I don't think I'll ever be able to afford to buy my own property. Um, You know, I don't think they should worry about it that much, but that's not not the same thing. But but to give it to, to one lot of people because they're living in a place which is cheaper doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, I think that we, we 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 shouldn't be quite so concerned about first-time buyers. I'm probably going to get hung out to dry for saying this, but when you factor in a whole bunch of other things around you know, interest rates now versus 25 years ago, yeah. the fact that first-time buyers don't pay stamp duty, the fact that there's this wonderful help-to-buy scheme that, of course, has been around for a while, the Boris mortgage, and so on and so on, actually, to get your first foot on the first rung of the property ladder right now is much easier than it was when you and I were buying properties back in 
well, yeah, let, let's just be kind to each other and say the uh, the late eighties, early nineties. Um, I bought my I bought my first apartment in nineteen eighty nine in New York City. Yeah, well, I was similar, although I was in South Wooden Ferry, so not quite as glamorous as. Uh, yeah, but I bet you made more money out of it than I did. Possibly, <laughs> <laughs> possibly so. So, um, so look, I, I, I think you know, there's there's definitely the 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 issue that some will have that this is the taxpayer subsidising social housing through housing associations that then allows people because. Be, be clear, this won't just be right to buy, Mike. This won't just be buying your council flat or council house. Mm. This will be at a discount. Yeah. Well, that's now, what I mean. That's why it's doubly unfair. Mm. The discount comes at the expense of the taxpayer. But but if you're Boris or Rishi Sunak, and, and, and you know maybe they have got some half-sensible advisors around them at long last, they'll realise that not only is this a vote winner, but, of course, when it comes to more and more people owning their own home and having equity in that home that they can then use for other things, whether it's consumer purchase to kind of buy up the wider economy or what Thatcher wanted back in 79-80 was for those people to go out and start businesses. You know, Margaret Thatcher, whether we love her or hate her, was the mother of entrepreneurialism, in my opinion. And I think Boris is trying to channel that and signal to those that otherwise wouldn't be in a position to be a homeowner that, look, you should vote Conservative. Well, that's true. And I mean, that will be great for those people who get those properties, uh, you know, knock down prices, because all the people who I've ever spoken to whose parents managed to buy that property, the council house that they've lived in for all their lives and they now own and it's now worth a lot of money. You know, they're all delighted. But the other people who are not in receipt of those, uh, you know, riches, if you like, are not so happy, i.e. most of the rest of the country. And, and, and the bottleneck, as always, will be that where we've ended up where social housing is concerned. You know, back in the 50s, under Macmillan, we built council houses. So local councils built about 300,000 council houses a year. Last year, we built about 3,000, so about 1% of the council houses that we built back in the 50s. Because what we've done now is to leave council house uh, purchase and build up to the likes of housing associations that are at the best of the big, at the behest of the mm. big housing developers. So, if we continue to allow the housing developers, the big ten, the big construction companies, to be the ones that build the properties, and that we then get social housing only as a consequence of that, then we've got a problem because those guys don't have it in their interests or their shareholders' interests to build any more social housing than they can possibly get away with. Now, Michael Gove, of course, recently has announced that he wants to take that. Uh, that that process away from house builders and just basically make them pay into a pot whereby the seven billion pounds or whatever that results from that would allow councils to build council houses. The problem is councils have forgotten how to build council houses. They don't know how to do it. Right. Well, that's entirely in keeping with everything else that they don't know how to do, uh, which doesn't surprise me at all. And that is by no means a party political statement. That's all councils, I'm afraid. Russell, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Russell Quirk, property expert, media commentator there uh, on this crazy idea. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, you may disagree with me. You might think this is great. You know, if I've got a council house, uh, I can buy it now just like I could under Maggie Thatcher. If I've got a uh, housing association place, which is relatively cheap, I'll be able to get a a knockdown rent, rent turned into a knockdown buy. I think it's wrong. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's May Day. May Day. May Day. Now, we're not shouting May Day, so please don't be alarmed. Uh, some people might be shouting May Day and other broadcasting organisations because they're probably thinking, oh, my God, how the hell are we going to compete with this? This is so good, right? They can't. There's nothing they can do. We've had Peter Hitchens on talking about everything from Julian Assange to the BBC uh, to why Tony Blair and the whole Blair Witch Project or the Witch Blair Project, as some people used to call it, was a complete sham. I mean, it was um, 1997, right? 
when he marched down Downing Street arm in arm with his wife Cherie, the human rights lawyer, multi-billionaire, champagne socialist and his kids and everybody was so happy. I remember the day very well. I was working at the Daily Express um, and we put a headline out that said Triumph with a picture of Tony Blair at the People's Palace celebrating. And I remember saying to the uh, person in charge at the time, Triumph. I said, that's the kind of car, isn't it? You might as well said Honda. That's no good. We changed it. Made it a lot better. Victory, I think, was um, what we ended up with, which I think you'll find was my headline. Uh, much better than Triumph in any way, shape or form. Anyway, so what happens is everybody goes, isn't it amazing? We've got somebody young, somebody new, somebody with a young family. Somebody who looks attractive, somebody who looks brand new, somebody who looks idealistic. These are the sorts of people that we want. And look how happy the people are. Look how happy they are. They've lined the street of Downing Street with their Union Jacks and Pride of Britain is back. It turned out that it was all a setup. It turned out that all of those people lining the street were, in fact, apparatchiks. They were, in fact, Labour Party employees and they brought their families along because... Tony Blair wanted it to look like he was the people's champion. You might remember, he was a man that liked to turn a phrase, thanks to his henchman, Alistair Campbell. He and I have had a few cross swords over the years. Do you remember that time when he came out and said, this is not a time for cliches, but I feel the hand of history on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, that was a Good Friday agreement. Yeah, not a cliche at all. She was the people's princess, he declared on the day that Diana died. That was another Alistair Campbell line. He was brilliant, Tony Blair. Uh, but as Peter Hitchens said, he was very much responsible for what we now are reaping in the world uh, of uh, civil service politicisation, of the Church of England's politicisation, of the Supreme Court, of all of the institutions that have been inveigled in some way by Blairites. That's what we're dealing with. Coming up in this hour, we've got lots more to do. Mary Jajewski is going to join us, former Moscow correspondent, of course. She's going to talk to us about the latest news uh, on Ukraine, which is that Moldova is now slightly worried about what's going to happen to them next because there are Russian speakers there. There are uh, ethnic Russians there. Uh, we'll find out from Mary just whether that could be the next target for Vladimir Putin's army. Also, John Rental will be here to talk about that moment when Tony Blair took over the country in 1997. Let's kick off, though, um, with the latest on the Ukraine situation. Mary Jajewski is here. Mary, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you too. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I suppose quite worrying this development in Moldova, isn't it? Tell us um, what it is that the Moldovans are concerned about. Well, I think um, we first have to make rather clear that um, this news and these warnings are coming primarily from Ukraine and from defence sources in Ukraine. So that the the filter, as it were, that's being applied here, um, this is what Ukraine wants you to hear. And it's obviously directed towards um, Western countries. And it's sort of saying, you know, be even more um, helpful to Ukraine than you already are being because um, Russia is determined to extend this war. Yes. Now, if we look at where it, where we're talking about, um, Moldova is to the west of Ukraine and there is a sliver of it that has been sort of in rebellion against Moldova um, ever since 91, 92, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And that is a pro-Russia 
bit of Moldova um, that sort of declared unilateral independence. Nobody recognizes it, but it's one of these sort of Trojan horse territories, very much like the um, the east of Ukraine, where, where the fighting has been going on for the last eight years mm. before Russia invaded. Um, and it's seen as a potential platform if Russia was going to extend the war into Western Ukraine. And, and so, you know, that, that's, that's, as it were, the, the geography of it. Yes. But I suppose you might say as well, the fact that the, the UK, in, and, and UK is not alone in this, is sending, I think, 8,000 troops to parts of Eastern Europe, which are so far unnamed, I think, but are li- likely to be places like Moldova and, and Lithuania, I would imagine. Um, you know, there's no, there's no suggestion that uh, this is not something that the Russians may be considering. No, um, but when you look at the logistics of it, you have to ask um, whether it would really be um, rational for Russia to be extending the war, at least at present, Mm. towards Moldova, because it seems to be having difficulty or um, restraining itself, if you like, from um, attacking the west of Ukraine. You know, west of Ukraine, centred on Lviv, there have been a few missile strikes there, but it's been completely possible for Western countries, NATO countries, to get large amounts of weapons um, in, whether by rail or by road, um, from Poland mm. and across into Western Ukraine. And either Russia has chosen not to attack those convoys or um, it finds it very difficult to do that. And if you're looking at Moldova, then that's even further Mm. from where Russia is entrenched. So that logistically, you do have to have questions about how realistic this would be for Russia. Sure. And I suppose that could be the reason why Russia's advances have been less successful perhaps than Vladimir Putin would have hoped because it is such a big country isn't it I mean I'm looking at the stories today about uh, the evacuation of Mariupol which appears to be one of the few parts of the country that that the Russians have got control of effectively Um, Mm -hmm. and they're allowing people to leave this steelworks and there are pictures of you know women and children sort of marching off uh, to be evacuated which you'd have to say is obviously a good thing to see albeit a horrible thing to see at the same time Absolutely. Um, but at the end of the day um, they really don't have the the hardware they don't have the 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 manpower to to be spread even more thinly no exactly i mean the the distances are very very big um and if you know if you go back to moldova for a second you can you can see that um from russia's point of view if one of its objectives might be to cut ukraine completely off from the sea and to take the the, the the major port of Odessa, which which is Ukraine's main outlet for its exports, for its defences um, on the Black Sea coast. If that is the next objective after Mariupol, mm. you can see that it would make a degree of sense for Russia maybe to, um, to, to, to position itself also from the West, because it's... When you talk about the big distances inside Ukraine, one of the maybe surprising things is that the distance from um, from Moldova and particularly from this um, separatist enclave called Transnistria, um, the distance from there to Odessa 
is really not that great. Um, you know, I've traveled that distance mm. by road um, and it's maybe three hours on bad roads, um, but it's direct. And um, you can see that in practice, that would be a possible thing to do to mm. try and um, try and take Odessa both from the land and from the sea. But it doesn't look to me from where Russia is at the moment that this would actually be a realistic proposition, either to take it or then to hold it. Yes, I think so. And have you detected uh, at all, Mary, any change in the tactics of Vladimir Putin? And you and I haven't spoken for a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> there are loads of people who will say um, it looks like Putin is, is trying to sort of maybe just, you know, annex a part of uh, eastern Ukraine, and he would be happy with that. But of course, the uh, Zelensky government would not be happy with that. So is there any change that you can detect? Well, I think one of the one of the big changes, I mean, you were talking about Mariupol. And it seemed to me that what's been happening yesterday, and you know, with any luck today as well, um, in terms of the evacuation from Mariupol of civilians, most interesting thing about this is not that an evacuation is taking place, but that it's taking place in two directions, that um, the people being evacuated appear to be being given a choice as to whether they're evacuated to the east into territory controlled by Russia, or whether they're evacuated to the west to territory controlled by Ukraine. Mm. Um, and this is, this is something completely new. Um, in the past, the the evacuations that have been possible, very patchy, but just about possible, have been exclusively to the east because that's the territory that Russia, Russia controls. And it can, if you like, um, guarantee a degree of safe passage. Now, those evacuations have been um, condemned as forced deportations yeah. um, by the Western side. And it's quite, you know, it's quite difficult to, to you, you can see that from both points of view, because it was only possible for Russia to evacuate people to the east, to the territory mm -hmm. that it controlled. Now, this appears to be an agreement that was um, that, that, that was achieved by the UN Secretary General when he was recently in Moscow and in Kiev. Um, and this is quite a big achievement. And it seems to me that it does represent um, a slight change from Moscow, yeah. that it's uh, that, that, that it, it, it's cooperating, at least so far, yeah. with this. Um, and maybe um, there was just some glimmer in Moscow that um, a, a massacre, which is what it would have been of a last stand that included women and children and civilians, in that area of the steelworks in Mariupol, that that would make things even worse yeah. for Russia on the um, public relations front, if nothing else, yes. um, than things already were. Yes. So I, do, you know, I do see a slight change in Moscow. Okay. That. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Mary Dijeski, there, former Moscow correspondent with the Times, now with the Independent. Thank you very much indeed. Um, certainly, um, if there is a change, uh, and it is one which involves allowing more civilians to 
be able to be safe, then that has got to be something to applaud. Uh, we can only keep watching and hoping that more lives are saved rather than snuffed out. This is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.